Welcome back to Case of the Sunday Scaries. I'm Elise and... And I'm Annie. And I am grinning from ear to ear right now. She's back. She's back. She's back. She's back. She's back. You guys don't have to listen to my voice solo anymore because Annie is back and I could not be happier. And you're a new mommy. So lots of things to celebrate. Lots of things. I had to quite literally dust my microphone off. <laughs> I pulled it out and I'm like, there's dust on it. It's time for me to go back to the podcast. And Elise, I have to ask, um, is your back sore from hearing this <laughs> podcast while I've been out? Um, it was just, it, it's definitely interesting when I'm in studio and I'm talking to myself and then I don't get your little quips and remarks. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just going to cry through this episode because I don't have Annie to banter and like <laughs> add some levity to it. So I'm definitely happy you are back. I'll be honest, after researching probably for over a month the Lori Vallow series, I'm also happy to let you take the reins and do some research on this episode because, whoo, that was a hard case to go through. It was. It was so well-researched. I really enjoyed listening to it from an audience's perspective because my voice wasn't in there. But yeah, that was hard. The case I have today is not any easier, though. Oh, well, you know, that is this podcast. <laughs> So let's just get into it because the case I have today is it's a big one, especially if you're in the Colorado area, you're probably familiar with it. But the case I am covering this week is about a mother who went missing on Mother's Day 2020 while on a bike ride not too far from here in Salida, Colorado. This case has it all. A picture-perfect family, a dark secret, a spy pin, and a theory about a mountain lion. This is the case of Suzanne Morphew. I want to preface this episode by saying that here in America, people are innocent until proven guilty. I am going to do my very best to keep that in mind while I discuss this episode. Suzanne has a husband. She has two daughters and friends and family who are still suffering from her disappearance. And I don't want to have this episode be a blaming game or pointing any fingers because as the case currently stands, no one is charged with her disappearance and suspected murder. And recently, it was deemed a cold case. I have followed this case since the day it happened, literally on Mother's Day. I'm a part of a Facebook group, and everyone in there has their theories. They have a suspect or two in mind. And I would be lying if I said I didn't have a person in mind, too. But I am pushing my thoughts and feelings aside. Today, I'm going to discuss what happened on May 9th and 10th, the potential theories and motives and the series of events that happened leading up to her disappearance and have occurred since. As for me, I'm going to reserve the right to judge whoever the hell I want. <laughs> because <laughs> I'm listening to this as an audience member too. I'm going to react to it. And you know that I love to put my detective cap on and listen to the evidence and see who done it. Mm -hmm. We'll just say any of my speculations are just that, speculations. Suzanne grew up in a little town in Indiana called Alexandria, and that's where she met her husband, Barry. The two met in high school. Suzanne was a popular, well-liked girl. Barry was a star baseball player. The couple, who began dating after Barry graduated high school, went to Purdue together, and they got married in 1994. Barry started a landscaping business, and Suzanne was a middle school teacher before leaving the job to raise her two daughters, Mallory and Macy. In 2018, the family moved from Indiana to Salida, Colorado. Family of the Morphews said it was to be closer to their older daughter, Mallory, who was attending a nearby college, but some also said that the move was an attempt at a fresh start for Suzanne and Barry's troubled marriage. The two had been through a lot. At the time of their move, Suzanne had been battling cancer for the second time in her life and was going through cancer treatments. The Morphews moved into a beautiful house on some mountain land, and all was well for two years, up until May 10, 2020, when the family's lives would forever change and really where our story starts. May 10th was Mother's Day. Mallory and Macy were coming back to Colorado from a camping trip in Idaho, and Barry had to work up in Broomfield, Colorado, so Suzanne had the morning to herself. I hope that she had a nice, quiet morning, Maybe she had a cup of coffee to herself, and maybe her daughter sent her some photos of their camping trip. I picture Suzanne walking around their property and soaking in the gorgeous Colorado sunshine. 
The daughters were the first to sound warning bells about their mom because they tried calling her that morning to wish her a happy Mother's Day, but she didn't answer. They called a few more times throughout the morning and eventually reached out to their dad to let him know what was going on. He called a neighbor to see if they would go over to their house and check on Suzanne. Their neighbor went over, looked around the house, and notified Barry that Suzanne was not home. Barry then asked if Suzanne's bike or car was there. The car was there. The bike was not. The neighbor immediately calls 911 and notifies them of a missing person. Even though no one actually saw her on the bike that morning, it was quickly assumed she had gone on a bike ride because Suzanne had recently taken up this hobby and went on rides almost daily. At this point in time, Barry was at a worksite in Broomfield, which is about three hours from Salida, right outside of Denver. He let another worker know that he had a family emergency and had to return home. He headed back to Salida and got there around 9 p.m. that night. The daughters also returned home that evening. After being notified of this potential missing person, and while the family was making their way home, law enforcement jumped into action and they began looking around the road leading up to the Morphew home. They were going around the mountain roads in their car, kind of looking for Suzanne, and that's when they noticed a blue mountain bike on the side of the ravine. They made a note in their initial findings that the bike looked out of place. One of the deputies examined the front rim of the bike, and he observed no damage to the tire, to the rim, or the spokes. One would expect to see damage if the brake had locked and the bike had went over head first, like it was staged to look like. The bicycle did not look like it was involved in any kind of crash. There was no blood on the scene, there were no skid marks on the road, and there were no signs of a struggle. While one law enforcement agent stayed at the scene of the bike, another went over to the Morphew residence and let Barry know they had found a bike and it could potentially be Suzanne's. The bike was identified as being the missing mom's, and investigators reported that Barry was very emotional upon hearing the news. Barry's asked a few standard questions, and he tells them, first and foremost, how great of a marriage he and Suzanne had. He says the day before, they had a nice dinner, they made love that night, and when he left to go to work around 5 a.m. in the morning, Suzanne was sleeping soundly in their bed. He left in his truck, traveled his normal route out of Salida, and began his workday in the Broomfield area. The following morning, on May 11th, search efforts ramp up with drones and scent tracking dogs. The search party was looking close to the Morphew home and around the area. Salida is really small. In 2020, the town population was a little over 5,000 people, and the town is nicknamed the Heart of the Rockies. Because it's nestled in the mountains, it's a pretty rough terrain for searchers, and at first, no one found any sign of Suzanne other than her bike. Three days pass, and Barry and a family friend put up a combined reward of $200,000 in return for Suzanne's safe return. But still, no updates in the case. Until the following day, when another item of Suzanne's was found. Her helmet. It was found one mile away from her bike and on the side of the road. This is where our first theory comes into the picture, and it's this idea that Suzanne was run off the road by a car and then kidnapped. It's a horrifying thought, and when you look at the town of Salida, the crime rate is pretty low, but it's a tourist town. There's a lot of people coming and going, so it's not completely wild to see the bike, to find the helmet, and think, oh wow, this poor woman was taken. Theory two is also briefly presented here. It's actually presented by Barry. He makes this statement that a mountain lion might have attacked her. He claims a mountain lion had been stalking the area and had been seen on surveillance footage of people's homes around where Suzanne went missing. This theory was very short-lived. Based upon the initial findings, or lack thereof, this theory was dismissed because there was no blood at the scene, and if a mountain lion would have taken her, there would have been evidence of that. The last theory, theory number three, is the one that most people are probably starting to consider, and it's that Barry has something to do with Suzanne's disappearance. Roughly 34% of women killed die at the hands of their intimate partner, according to ABC News, so I don't think it's wrong to look at the husband. Okay, going over these theories, I was just Googling why you were telling me this. So since 1890 to 1994, 
there's only been 64 mountain lion attacks against humans. So the probability of that one is probably pretty small. Agree. Also, I don't think a mountain lion is going to take a whole lot of interest in making sure that her helmet is a mile away. Granted, yes, if it's like still strapped to her head during the attack. I mean, let's not get gruesome here, but I can see dragging the body away from where it was attacked. A lot of animals do that. But this isn't like a grizzly bear, okay? (laughs) I'm just going to leave it at that. (laughs) There would probably be some very telltale signs at the scene. If we're going to talk about kidnapping, adult napping in this case, if you will. I was going to say, is it still kidnapping? It must be, but it's an interesting move. One, they don't see anything at the scene, tire treads, like anything that would show that she was struck by a car. To me, I'd be like, okay, maybe not abduction, but maybe someone accidentally hit her. Someone was driving impaired and hit her and then panicked. That would almost make more sense. But why would you hit the person? Like this is a woman alone in a pretty vulnerable situation. If you had the means or the weapons or whatever to like threaten and intimidate, you could potentially get someone in your vehicle without running them off the road. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. And there was no damage to the bike. So if it had been hit by a car, it would have been very obvious. So I am going to go with drum roll, please. Their marriage wasn't as picture perfect as he presented it to be. You're going with theory number three. Yeah. You are not alone in this because that's kind of what people are starting to think. The first thing that caused people to do a little side-eyeing is a video that Barry releases one week after Suzanne's disappearance, and we're going to play it here. Oh, Suzanne, if anyone is out there that can hear this, that has you, please, we'll do whatever it takes to bring you back. We love you. We miss you. Your girls need you. No questions asked. However much they want, I will do whatever it takes to get you back. Honey, I love you. I want you back so bad. To a lot of people, this video seemed off. Barry doesn't seem super emotional. People dissect every single word he says and, you know, kind of judge his lack of grief. We have said it time and time again on this podcast. Everyone grieves differently. If I ever had to do a video pleading for my loved one's safe return, People would probably say, oh my gosh, that lady is so emotional. She is trying way too hard, yada, yada, yada. So I don't really want to get hung up on this video as hard as it is not to. It's been one full week after his wife's disappearance. I cannot imagine the stress he's going through trying to find his wife while consoling his daughters, while working with law enforcement. I mean, it's a horrible thought. In the video, he looks exhausted and totally defeated. He looks like he's aged 10 years in a week. I'll post that video to our social media accounts for anyone who wants to watch it. While Barry might look like a person of interest, he isn't arrested, but law enforcement is keeping a close eye on him because at this point, they don't have any other solid leads to follow. Over the next three months, an intense search happens. A residential area in Salida that Barry had done construction work on is searched. Waterways are searched. Residents of Salida are asked to preserve any video footage from May 8th to the 12th that their home security cameras might have captured, and the Morphew home was cordoned, which means the family is not able to enter the house. Suzanne's search has now gained national attention, and what happens when a missing person's face is plastered all over? People start talking. People start remembering, and that's exactly what happened in this case. One of Barry's coworkers named Jeff came forward with some interesting information. If you recall from earlier in the episode, Barry was in the Broomfield, Denver area the day Suzanne went missing. He was there on a work trip, and this coworker took over Barry's hotel room when Barry found out about Suzanne. Why didn't the coworker get his own hotel room? I don't know. I can only assume it's because Barry had planned on staying there longer but had to make that emergency trip home. Maybe the hotel room was already paid for, something like that. When the co-worker arrived at the hotel room, he found it scattered with wet towels and the room smelled strongly of chlorine. He also discovered a pile of mail in the room, including a letter about property insurance. He quickly notified law enforcement, and he went very public with these findings, talking to reporters. After these claims from Jeff, the co-worker made headlines 
Barry comes forward to tell his side of the story. He said that yes, he had handed off the project last minute to Jeff, and yes, he left the hotel room in a panic. But as far as the chlorine smell, Barry said that he too had smelled it. He said he didn't get into the pool and he never brought chlorine into the room. This was in the middle of COVID, so Barry had chalked the smell up to cleaning supplies the cleaning team might have potentially used. The hotel manager then comes into the scene and says, A, the pool was closed due to COVID, and B, the cleaning crew uses a hydrogen peroxide-based cleaning solution, no chlorine. So this is still one point of mystery. Who knows? After the news of the weird smell, Suzanne's brother, who is named Andrew, comes forward. He gets vocal about some findings that he's been made aware of. He said after investigators searched the Morphew home, they told him that there was an overwhelming smell of bleach in the house. Investigators had also asked Andrew why there weren't any coolers in the house, which was odd considering Barry was an avid hunter. If you hunt, you have meat, but you have no coolers. Andrew is immediately suspicious of Barry. The strong bleach smell and the lack of coolers were discovered when the Morphew property was searched. It had been searched multiple times with two separate sealed search warrants, and there were some interesting things found at the home. I'm going to get into that a little bit later because that all came to light during a court hearing. But we're now in September of 2020, a few months after Suzanne's disappearance. And this is when her brother, Andrew, arrives in Colorado from Indiana. He has put together an independent search party for his sister. He said, quote, I'm pretty certain they exhausted all the resources, and that's why I'm coming out here. I don't see anybody out there making any great big moves. I don't know why I'm the one that has to do this. I would think the husband missing his wife would. And that's what's odd. Neither Barry nor the daughters participated in this massive search. There was a lot of friction between Suzanne's siblings and Barry and the girls, so I'm kind of assuming that's why. But when asked why he didn't help with the search, Barry told Fox 21 News, quote, If they asked me for help, I would help. Nobody has contacted me because Andy is doing this for a publicity stunt, end quote. It just kind of came to me when you were saying this because I always try to put myself in their shoes. If my mom went missing, I think, because you don't know until you're in that situation, that I would be part of that search. However, you're searching at this point not for someone alive. And I think that that has to be remembered that it might not be shady that her kids weren't involved in that search because who would want to come upon their mother? This is already a traumatizing enough situation, but to be the one that potentially finds your mother in a, in a state of decomposition, I don't know how you would get over that image. So it's weird to me, the husband, that still is strange to me, but the kids, even if they, you know, they're grown at this point still I would like to think I'd be part of that but it would be really hard to wrestle with what if I'm the one that finds her yeah that's unimaginable that's an image you would never get out of your head the six-day search consisted of over 500 volunteers and they covered 6,000 miles but according to the sheriff's office the search concluded with no evidence linked to Suzanne's case less than five months after Suzanne went missing two bizarre things happen First, the Morphew family home located on Puma Path was listed for sale on Zillow for a whopping $1.7 million and sold pretty quickly. The other piece of the bizarreness is that something is found in Suzanne's Range Rover. It's a piece of DNA that is a partial match to that of an unknown man who is connected to sexual assault cases in Tempe, Phoenix, and Chicago. These two pieces of news shocked everyone. This right here is where I can't help but think there is another solid option that perhaps Suzanne was taken by a sexual predator. Or the option that we've seen in a lot of cases is you uncover the mystery of who done it in one case, and that leads to solving other cases. So is it an unknown assailant or is it someone that's known to her that also potentially was involved with some horrific things in his past? Because a lot of times people don't wake up and decide to commit murder. There's an escalation process. I agree. 
I think it definitely makes the case that's already confusing even more complex. For sure. People online go bananas, not only about the house being sold, but about the possibility of this other mystery man. I do think that law enforcement had kind of tunnel vision when it came to this case. They only had eyes for Barry. And it just seemed like law enforcement wasn't taking this other DNA seriously. And it kind of seemed like they weren't making a ton of progress in the case. They were being super tight-lipped about what was going on. And people started to worry that the case would go cold. But just because we don't always see progress in cases does not mean that law enforcement and investigators aren't hard at work. And on May 5th, 2021, Barry Morphew was arrested. He was facing charges of first-degree murder, tampering with evidence, and attempting to influence a public servant. The last charge about a public servant kind of stumped me, but according to the arrest affidavit, between and including May 10th, 2020 and May 5th, 2021, Barry unlawfully and felonously attempted to influence eight public officials by means of deceit. Basically, he lied to them, and that's what they're going to charge him with. The murder charge was risky because at this point, Suzanne's body still hadn't been found. It's challenging, to say the least, to charge someone with murder when you don't have a body, but investigators feel like they have enough evidence to move forward. Eight days later, boom, another bombshell. Prosecutors file new charges against Barry Morphew, saying he submitted a presidential election ballot in Suzanne's name. During the election in October of 2020, the Chafee County clerk, which is the county that Salida is in, called the sheriff's office after her office received Suzanne Morphew's mail-in ballot. On that ballot, Barry Morphew had signed as a witness and dated it October 15th, 2020. I mean, bro, you cannot vote on your missing wife's behalf. It does not work like that. And it is immediate red flags. Either he is very much on one side of the election in 2020 and was like, no, I need to make sure every vote counts and this is what my wife would have done, which is questionable to say the very least. But more so, is he trying to plant this idea in people's mind that she's alive? But here's where he really messed up with doing that is he signed himself as a witness. That Mm -hmm. means that he saw her in October. So, like, neither scenario works very well for you. He was not thinking. With this particular charge, he did end up pleading guilty, and he was fined $600. That's it? That's it. Don't be getting any ideas, listeners. Don't be voting on anyone else's behalf. $600 for voter fraud. That's a lot lighter of a sentence than I would have anticipated. I think it's because he pled guilty. And I think at this point, they have so much on him that they're just like throwing the book at him. This was a very small charge compared to a murder charge. After Barry's arrest, the case really picks up. The Colorado Bureau of Investigations, the FBI, and the sheriff's office had been hard at work on this case, and a lot was uncovered in Barry's initial court hearing. First, the marital issues between Suzanne and Barry were brought forth, and as it turns out, things were much worse than they seemed. It was discovered that Suzanne was having an affair. She had been having an affair for two years with a man named Jeff. This is not Jeff from previously. This is not the coworker Jeff. But this man is from Indiana, and he actually went to high school with Suzanne. After moving to Colorado in 2018, Suzanne had Facebook messaged Jeff, Howdy, stranger, and the two hit it off. You like my little accent there? Howdy, stranger. Suzanne. Oh, my. Suzanne. That's salacious and shocking. That's not the direction I thought you were going to go with this. I'm telling you, this case is wild. The two met up six different times in person, and they consider themselves soulmates. They would send romantic texts, and they would send each other photos of their bodies. Um, Jeff was actually planning a trip to Colorado in March of 2020, but then COVID happened. At first, Jeff remained really quiet when he heard about Suzanne. He didn't talk about Suzanne to anyone until investigators located him and found out that he had deleted all social media accounts that he used to communicate with Suzanne. He had a lot to lose. He didn't want to lose his job. He was married and had, I think, six daughters. He didn't want to lose his family. 
and he was really afraid that investigators were going to consider him a suspect. So he was immediately like, I had nothing to do with this. Take my phone, take my DNA, do whatever you need to to clear me because I am innocent. Just a little PSA to anyone listening who finds themselves in this um, marital tangled web, if you will, is a nice way to put it, and someone in that goes missing or is killed, just call police right away because it's, it's just better to lead with honesty. I would assume that automatically when they find out he deleted everything and was like, mm-mm, wasn't me, but didn't come forward, they had to find him. That's a little suspicious there, Jeff. It is. And what's also wild is it took investigators around six months to find out who this man was. Suzanne did a great job at covering up the affair. Investigators pieced together their relationship. They learned that Suzanne and Jeff had met up in different states and had talked about becoming husband and wife and moving to Ecuador. Jeff did not believe that Barry Morphew knew about him. He said, quote, if he knew about me, he would have come after me. I just don't think he knew that Suzanne and I were together, end quote. Jeff was ruled out as a suspect because he had an airtight alibi. He was in Michigan the week Suzanne went missing. He also, like I said, had provided his DNA, the passwords to the deleted social media accounts, and his phone records. So all of that combined cleared him. You ready for the next bombshell? This affair was brought to light because of a spy pin. This spy pin was found during a search warrant. I'm speechless. A spy pin. Those actually exist. I want 15 of them, please. I'm putting them all over my neighborhood. I want to be a spy. I think that would just make you a creeper, actually, Annie. (laughs) That's true. That's true. (laughs) So this spy pin that I want really badly was found during a search warrant. It had been purchased by one of Suzanne's friends to spy on Barry because A, her friend was worried for Suzanne's safety. She was a good friend. But B, Suzanne kind of thought Barry was having an affair. The spy pin is really what tipped off law enforcement to the issues between Suzanne and Barry because it recorded not only the affair, but the more law enforcement dug into these problems, the worse it became. Text messages between Suzanne and her friends were brought to light. And according to Suzanne, Barry was physically and verbally abusive. So that spy pen is not only catching the affair, so Suzanne and Jeff speaking to each other, but also phone calls that Suzanne made. There was also evidence, thanks to this spy pen, that she had confronted Barry four days before her disappearance. Not only did she do that in person, but she also texted him saying, quote, done, let's handle this civilly, end quote. Suzanne has this friend named Sheila, and Sheila is a total girl's girl. She's the one who bought that spy pen. There's a text message thread that I want to read off. So Elise, you're going to read off Sheila's portion, and I'm going to read off Suzanne's. I'm a little bummed that I'm not going to live out my romance novel fantasy here. I thought we were going to read messages between her and Jeff. Those are hot and steamy. (laughs) Let me tell you. Okay, I'll start off. So I am Suzanne. Keep that in mind. Taking care of myself physically in a stressful marriage. Blank, which that basically means that she said one of her daughter's names in this text messages, but we're not going to say what the daughter's name is because that's out of the affidavit. Blank and I had a very tough talk yesterday. She's weary of the tension here. She knows how he is toward me and almost begged me to divorce him. What does he want? Have you talked any more about splitting? He threatens, but I've never come out and said I wanted it today. He thinks I'm holding on till after blank graduates. He probably thinks I'm not strong enough to do it given finances. She, blank, even mentioned a restraining order. I'm sick I had to have a conversation like that with my 16-year-old. He's nuts. He's Jekyll and Hyde again. Pretty much told him I can't be healthy and stay in this. What did he say? He threatens to come home and pack. Ugh. He won't speak of divorce. Begging for another chance. I'm so torn, but in my heart, I know who he is. I have sent texts like this. Not about divorce, but I have certainly sent texts like this where you're going back and forth with allegedly an abusive partner, whether it's physical or emotional or otherwise. We even talked about very heavily in the series on domestic violence that we did where it's that up and down. So when she's talking about Jekyll and Hyde, I get it where she's going, I should leave. 
And she has this other thing going on, Jeff, right? That looks like this bright, shiny thing outside of this tumultuous marriage. And yet he's going, fine, you want to leave? Okay, bye. And then two seconds later, it's, I love you. I want to make this work. I just, I feel for her in this instance, because that is not a fun position to be in if he was, again, allegedly being physically and verbally abusive to her. Yeah, it's a spot no one should ever be in. So my heart goes out for her as well. Investigators also managed to pull the Notepad app off of Suzanne's iCloud. And I'm going to read off some of those notes. Threatened to jump out of car. Gun. Shame and guilt daily for not meeting expectations. Nothing to do with infidelity. Everything to do with your character and who you are at your core. Your lack of control over me equals insecurities equals a sick relationship. Verbal abuse. Money in your name only. Bedroom profession about marrying, having babies, and sleeping together. Don't care about preg possibilities. Preg, I'm assuming pregnancy. So we know they have these issues. And I hinted a little bit earlier that while doing searches of the house, some things seemed off. I'm now going to get into those. All of these findings I'm going to talk about are according to the arrest affidavit. First, on May 11th, the day after Suzanne goes missing, one of the investigators located what appeared to be Suzanne's blood on the apron of the garage. The apron of the garage is a fancy term for that concrete slab in front of the garage door. I have no idea how or why they assumed it was Suzanne's, but they did. They also found Suzanne's white Range Rover in the garage, and in her car was her driver's license and credit cards. When investigators went inside the house during their search, they found a live 22 caliber round next to Suzanne Morphew's bed and a plastic dart tranquilizer cap in the dryer of the home. What? Barry did not act surprised at all. Remember, first of all, with the caliber round, he is an avid hunter. And he said he's an experienced tranquilizer dart shooter. What a profession. Like, what a resume adder. Also, I am a professional at shooting darts that tranquilize things. I mean, this man isn't a veterinarian. He's not trying to give shots to a wild rhino and needs to put him down. So what is the need to have any experience in that? So in terms of that tranquilizer dart lid, Barry said that he uses tranquilizer darts to stun deer and cut their antlers off to sell them. He said, quote, I shoot them. They go to sleep. I cut their antlers off. It's totally illegal, but you're going to find tranquilizer darts around the house, end quote. So he's a piece of shit. Not a good guy. The smoking gun, in my opinion, the thing that really does not make Barry look good is the data they pulled off of Barry's truck. Investigators tapped into his digital vehicle forensics, and they pulled data out of his truck, which told a completely different story and went against everything he had originally told law enforcement. An expert in vehicle forensics looked at the data in the truck, and this data is accurate enough to be used in court as evidence. Also, side note, there is four hours in the early morning of May 10th that's completely missing from not only his truck data, but also his cell phone because he put his cell phone in airplane mode. And in terms of the truck data that's gone, the expert said it happened sometimes. It can be overridden. It wasn't a purposeful where he went in there and deleted it. It just happened. And it, it honestly super unfortunate that it happened here. A report was created from the truck data. And here's what it says. First off, he told law enforcement that him and Suzanne went to bed at 8 p.m. The truck data determined that was a lie. I'm using my Maori voice right there. <laughs> you are not the father. <laughs> you are a liar. The data said the truck was put into reverse and moved 96 feet closer to the house around 9.30 p.m. If you're asleep at 8, who's driving your truck? Barry said that he set his alarm for 4.30 on Mother's Day and left by 5 to drive to that job site in Broomfield. That's also a lie. The truck's data showed that someone was opening and closing the doors at 3 a.m. Barry originally said that he took his normal route. He exited his driveway. He took a right. But according to the data, he took a left. When that's brought up, he said, oh, that's right. I remember seeing elk and I'm a hunter, so I wanted to go look at them. That route change really backfired because it puts him in the area where that helmet was found. 
at 8.10 a.m. on Mother's Day, Barry's cell phone is back online. So he turns that airplane mode off. It's back online. And this is where the story just gets even weirder. He pulls over to five different stops. One's a bus stop. One's a McDonald's. One's a dumpster at a men's warehouse and twice back at the hotel. And at each stop, he takes things out of his truck and puts them in a dumpster at those locations. What is he dumping? There is video surveillance of him getting out of the truck, bringing a trash bag, throwing it away. But it wasn't clear what exactly he was dumping. When asked about these objects in question, Barry said that because he works construction, he has a lot of trash and he does a lot of illegal dumping because it's cheaper than taking the trash to the landfill. But why do you go to five different spots? This guy also, I can guarantee it, does not return carts to where they belong in a parking lot. He's just not a good guy at all. 100%. Shooting tranquilizer darts for God knows what. I mean, I think we can all assume what he's dropping off has nothing to do with construction. Because you wouldn't need to go to five different spots if all of that trash can fit in your truck, it can fit into one commercial-sized dumpster. Yep. There's a lot going on. I know it's a ton of information I'm throwing at you. And if I break down every piece of the 131-page arrest affidavit, this episode will never end. So let's get into what law enforcement and investigators think happened between May 9th and May 10th based upon the evidence they gathered. Here's kind of the story they laid out at court. On May 9th, Suzanne and Jeff messaged 59 times that day. This is a lot more than usual. Suzanne sends a selfie, and they call this the proof of life. It shows that she was alive at this point in time. The texts between the two get a little heated. They get a little steamy. At 2.26 p.m., Barry texts Suzanne. No one knows if Suzanne saw that text. Barry follows up. He says, did you leave? No response from Suzanne. Barry's cell phone data then shows him at the house, and his cell phone is pinging all around the outside of the house. Investigators think that he had tranquilized her and was chasing her around. An expert in tranquilizing comes in and says that if she was shot, she would be able to run around, but she wouldn't get far. Investigators think that either Barry caught Suzanne in the act of having this affair, this kind of steamy text exchange, or the fact that she was trying to divorce him, think back to that message four days prior where she said, done, let's do this civilly, finally sent him over the edge and he killed her on May 9th. Based upon his truck data, they believe that he drove into the mountains that night and buried her body somewhere. They then think that he staged the scene, tossed the bike and helmet over the ravine. Think back to that bike. Immediately, deputies made a note that it looked weird. There was no damage to the bike. The helmet's found a mile away. Supposedly, based upon the data of the truck, Barry was in that area on the early morning of May 10th. A lot of evidence, I think, against him, but we still don't have a body. The hearing leading up to the trial is just as complex as the case. I have never seen or heard of a judge openly giving an opinion about a case before making that decision, but the judge who was in charge, Judge Murphy, gave his opinion of the state's evidence. He said, quote, I find that the proof is not evident nor is the presumption great that Mr. Morphew committed first-degree murder, end quote. Despite that, the judge ruled that there was probable cause to go to trial. I'm going to interject here because it makes sense. Because if he did this in an act of rage, it might not be first-degree murder. They have to be able to prove what qualifies for first-degree murder is premeditation. So he might not be saying, I don't think this guy did it. He might just be saying, I don't know if there's enough evidence between this couple and what we currently have to show premeditation. Because if it was done in a heat of passion, that's second degree murder. The defense attorneys for Barry had planned to hit on the mystery DNA hard. All they have to do is plant that seed of doubt in a jury's mind that, yes, they had their issues, but there is DNA in her car that proves someone else could be involved. I get planting the seed of doubt. They got to use whatever they have, right, as defense attorneys. But they've also not done anything to prove that her car, which was still at the house and didn't have blood evidence in it or anything like that, was used to commit this crime in any way. So why would DNA inside her car, when it wasn't the scene of the crime or involved in the crime, 
It's not like they found the car, you know, at a parking garage 10 miles away or something. I don't know if if I was a jury member, if that would hold much weight to me. She could have just given someone a ride. Yeah, that's a good point. And also one thing I read in the reports was that the prosecution said if someone was like detailing her car and cleaning it or if she had taken it to an auto shop and a piece of hair fell, that could have been it. So I see both sides. I do see the defense grasping at anything because that's their job. Mm -hmm. But I also see where the prosecution can come in and say, don't even worry about that DNA because it happened from, you know, a McDonald's bag. Like there was hair on the bag and it fell, which is gross to think about. Barry Morphew's homicide trial was set to begin on April 28, 2022. But in the months leading up to that date, two things happen. First, Judge Murphy, the judge who gave that pretty bold opinion, recused himself. I'm not sure why. And he was replaced by Judge Ramsey Lama. And second, Barry's defense team filed motions asking that prosecutors be sanctioned for, quote, failing to produce discovery in a timely manner, end quote. So another thing for our listeners who aren't in America, we have the right to a speedy trial. So what Barry's defense team is saying here is that the prosecutors keep pushing back the trial date, which they had many times, and they're not providing all the evidence they have during their discovery phase, which legally they're supposed to do. Judge Lama agreed with the defense. He ruled that prosecutors repeatedly had missed deadlines and had failed to turn over important information during that discovery phase. The judge wrote that while he did not find these actions, quote, willful, the court does find this pattern to be negligent, bordering on reckless, end quote. The judge's penalty was to knock out 14 prosecution witnesses, including experts in DNA and cell phone and vehicle data recovery. They would not be allowed to testify. So I went on earlier. My smoking gun was the truck data. They were no longer allowed to bring on that expert because of them stalling and not presenting all the um, information earlier. That's like mind blowing to me. I swear I could never be a lawyer because my ADD brain would accidentally forget something like this. And then I would have criminals going free all the time. I'm glad I'm doing a podcast where I can go back and research and, and remind myself <laughs> because God forbid I was ever in charge of prosecuting the bad guys. I would definitely mess up because they have to be so careful about dotting their I's, crossing their T's, making sure everything's done in a timely manner or the bad guy can get away with it. Agree. And I think what was really happening, the prosecutors were kind of scrambling they really wanted to convict Barry because, double jeopardy, if he went to trial, they gave their evidence, the jury says, nope, he's innocent, he can't be retried for that. So it's stressful because the public is looking at them going, we want justice for Suzanne, but they're going, okay, we have some, but is it really enough to get this guy behind bars? I don't know. Well, all of this is circumstantial right now at best. You know, mm -hmm. they don't have her body. They don't have a way to test her body for DNA, fingerprints, all that stuff that they would normally do for, God forbid, tranquilizer venom or whatever it would be called. I'm not really sure what you call it, <laughs> serum. But they don't have any of that. So this is truly besides the truck evidence and him dumping stuff, but they don't have those bags recovered of what's in those bags. To me, this is a difficult one to win. It is. And on April 19th, 2022, as a pre-trial hearing was about to begin, District Attorney Linda Stanley filed a motion to dismiss the murder charges against Barry Morphew without prejudice, meaning the case could be refiled and retried at a later date. In her motion, the DA pointed to the court's decision to bar those several key witnesses and said without this critical evidence and without the victim's body, the people cannot move forward at this time in good faith. Neither Barry, his daughters, nor his team of lawyers had any advanced warning that the DA was going to file a motion to dismiss the charges. Can you imagine sitting in the courtroom knowing that, okay, Barry, you're going on trial, like this is a pre-trial hearing, it's going to get really intense, only to have the DA come go, nope, just kidding, we actually don't want this, but we want it without prejudice which means that we can retry you if anything were to happen. I feel like at that point, you're just living in limbo. Yeah, we've seen that happen before, but I'm sitting here going, I have no legal expertise whatsoever. And 
I don't know how they would have won that case without truck data, without submission of all of these key points of evidence. They have nothing besides a hunch. A hunch, and they have a really bold statement. They came out and said they know where Suzanne's body is, but it's in a place that's really hard to get to, and they said it's buried under five feet of snow. I get the mountainous region, but I think back to that independent search party by Andrew, Suzanne's brother. They covered 6,000 miles around the Morphew home. There is that missing truck data. He could have went two hours into the mountains, but that is, that is so bold to say. We know where her body's at. They, they're going to die on that hill that he did it. Well, unless they got a tip. You know, somebody saw something and they're not going to release that information to the public as they have every right not to do. True. I mean, it's bold to say we know where it is and not we think that we know where it is. Um, I wonder if they've done some like sonar or anything like that that has made them come to this conclusion. But we both live in Colorado. We know the weather here is wild. Absolutely wild. Especially as of lately. Oh, Lord. We know from experience that the weather is pretty crazy here. So it certainly would make sense that they might not be able to go into certain areas based on the time of year it is. But that is a very strong statement to say we know and not we think we know. Yeah. I also am going to call bluff. I think they're doing that to intimidate Barry. I think that, yes, she could be buried somewhere, but... I don't know. I think they're scrambling because of what the public's now thinking of them. But more news. This past May, three years after Suzanne disappeared, Barry Morphew filed a civil rights lawsuit against Chafee County, the county that Salida's in, prosecutors, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, and FBI employees. The 185-page lawsuit is asking for $15 million in damages. It claims the defendants engaged in actions including malicious prosecution, unlawful detention, fabrication of evidence, conspiracy, unlawful retention of property, reckless investigation, and failure to supervise and train. As a result of the defendant's conduct, Barry spent five months in jail, approximately six more months wearing a GPS ankle monitor, and almost a year defending himself against criminal charges. After news of the lawsuit broke, Barry and his two daughters sat down with Good Morning America. And I would be lying if I said it wasn't a heartbreaking segment to watch, especially because at the end of the day, her two daughters are the ones suffering the most. The Morphew family absolutely slammed authorities for the charges brought against Barry. Barry said, quote, it's very hurtful to lose your reputation, your integrity, end quote. He went on to say that Suzanne had made some bad decisions but he blamed it on the chemotherapy she was taking for her cancer. Mallory and Macy, the two daughters, stand firmly behind their dad, and they say there is no way he could have done this. When asked about the hardest part of the past three years, they just said not having their mom. I have followed this case for over three years, and I'll continue to do so until one day, hopefully soon, we have answers and her family gets the closure they so badly deserve. But if you go on social media, Look up the hashtag justice for Suzanne. You can see her face. We'll post it on our social media. You can just see that warmth behind her. She was an amazing woman. And I don't know. It's one of those cases I, I cannot stop thinking about. I think about it all the time. I think throughout this episode, if you've heard my reactions, you know where my inkling falls of who's guilty in this. So my heart breaks for those kids. My opinion isn't really swayed by him filing a civil lawsuit. Because that could be his lawyers telling him to do that to, again, make him look like, you know, I'm the victim of this investigation here. Maybe he is innocent and he's just a really sketchy dude that chops off antlers of living animals to sell and for some reason has bullets and tranquilizer darts in his house. That's a choice. It's a choice. Not one that I agree with, but my heart just breaks for her kids and for her family, and honestly, what it seems like she was going through. We want to always keep this podcast victim-focused. And yes, no one in this world is perfect. It's shown that she was having an extramarital affair, but that does not give anyone the right to be abusive or hurtful or potentially murderous. So I'm not going to say that she was perfect by any means, but whatever happened to her, I know for a fact she did not deserve. So this is a heartbreaking situation all the way around. 
please keep following this, Annie, because I have formed an opinion that I'm going to be sticking with unless we know something else. But my heart just goes out to her family because I cannot imagine. And what a choice for this to happen on Mother's Day. Anniversaries of, of it's bizarre losing people yeah. is hard enough, but for it to be Mother's Day is just heartbreaking for her daughters, I'm sure. So, wow, what a case to come back on. Did you guys miss me? Me and my unsolved mysteries. <laughs> I don't know if I missed that part of it. I certainly missed you, but now <laughs> I'm going to be, of course, going on my normal deep dives after we end these episodes where you leave me on a cliffhanger. But again, we can just hope and pray that justice, at least in whatever semblance that comes for Suzanne, is going to be coming very, very swiftly. Well, on that note, Annie, I love having you back. Thanks for giving me a little break from diving into Doomsday Mom. We did a poll on Instagram and on Spotify, um, which, by the way, guys, if you listen to Spotify, you can follow up with questions or react to the episodes now on the Spotify app, which is really fun. So feel free to do so when you listen to these episodes. We love to hear what you think. We did a poll about whether you wanted me to follow up the Laura Vallow series with my thoughts and suspicions about Alex Cox, her brother. There's a lot of stuff that I think was passed over in the press because there was so much to go over in this case. And I think there was potentially going to be many more victims of Lori Vallow had her and Chad not been put away. I want to do that deep dive on Alex, but I need a little break from Lori Vallow and her family because that was a very heavy subject. Anytime that we're talking about children, it's just heartbreaking on in a very different way for me when doing that kind of research because no one on this planet deserves what happened to these people but when it's innocent children it just for whatever reason hits me a little different so that will come after I take a little break from Lori Vallow and give myself a reprieve from trying to get into the mindset of these just horrific horrific people I need to take a step out of their brain for a couple of weeks before I go back in. So the Alex episode is to come. You'll just have to hang tight on it for a little bit. But as always, please join us next Sunday. We will be back for an all new episode. I'll be back on the mic. Annie hopefully will be here, but she is a new mama. So just be patient with her. Her schedule is going to be a little bit flexible in the months to come, but she will join us when she can. But I absolutely am happy to have you back, Annie. And... We will see you next Sunday. As always, until then.